right, everyone, welcome to another beautiful week at ToastyKettle.com. My name's James, I'm your host, and today we're going to be talking about the chicken industry. So what motivated this episode actually came from a cookbook that I was reading in 1887. The cookbook was from 1887, I wasn't reading it in 1887. Uh, and in the cookbook, it was I was going over a recipe for chicken in the cookbook and it directed you to take a whole chicken that was about five pounds and then do the various things that the the recipe called for and that surprised me a little bit and got me thinking because when I think about chicken today I think about it in terms of being a product that's entirely different from what it was in the 1800s. And I thought back in the 1800s, it was uh, a, a chicken was going to be much smaller and tastier than it is today. However, I can go down to any grocery store and have no problem buying a five-pound chicken. So I started to wonder, were chickens really different back in the 1800s compared to where they're at today? And I started to do some research, and the the conclusion that I came to was that, yes, chickens would get to be roughly the same size as they are today. The difference, the difference being how long it takes them to get to that weight, where in the 1800s and early 1900s, it was something that happened more naturally. They would grow to that five pounds uh, a lot more uh, over a, a greater period of time than they do today. And today it's just a, a matter of weeks and they're at that five pound weight and ready to be sold. So part of this thought process sparked a desire to actually reach out to people that farm chickens and raise chickens. I reached out to Chris and Sherry Hill. They operate the Hill Family Farm in White House, Tennessee. In just a moment, I'm going to play that interview for you to hear their thoughts on community farming versus commercial farming. And I thought it was very informative. You know, when you think about all the different labels out there today with cage-free, organic, humanely raised, grass-fed, pasture you know, you can go on and on and on. And I think that that's the industry trying to make their product seem more wholesome, more natural. And so I wanted to see what the difference was between a commercially produced chicken and then a community-raised, local farm-raised chicken. So enjoy the interview. Here's Chris and Sherry. Hi, James. This is Chris. And Hi, James. I'm Sherry. Hey, let's go ahead and start. I'll have you start by introducing yourselves and what it is that you do. Okay, great. I think for this particular question, I'll, I think, Chris, how about you go ahead and answer that? Hi, I'm Chris with Hill Family Farm. We run a small five-acre farm in Middle Tennessee. Uh, we raise pigs and egg layers and meat chickens here on the farm along with all of our produce that we grow. Um, we do a, a CSA basket every year that's community supported agriculture. So we provide uh, uh, several meals worth of vegetables uh, at a time to people. 
And, and I'm Sherry Hill, and we also want to mention our partner farm, the Skeltons in Linden, Tennessee. We purchase cows, and then they raise them on their land, and they raise them just like we do. They're pasture-raised with supplemental non-GMO feed. That's great. And that's about the, the yeah, that's about the, the long and short of the farm in terms of did you want any background about how it started? Yeah, I I love that. So when I do these interviews, one thing that I I love to have on the show are uh, family businesses, particularly if they're multi-generational, right? So from what I understand, you're all second generation? Well, yeah. Um, in terms of taking it over, I guess you could say that, but the farm is, is fairly um, fairly young. I mean, yeah. we're we were started, uh, the farm started in 2013, um, and it was just my parents doing it on their five acres. Then about three years ago, I quit my job truck driving and came on to the farm full time. And so then we were doing the animal production on my parents' property, and I was about 20 miles away, and we were doing our produce up there on that property. Uh, and then this past winter, mom and dad decided they want to retire from the farm and get an RV and live life on the road. And so we moved into their old house. We consolidated all of the animals and, and produce onto this one property. And so, yeah, now it's my wife and I run in the farm and my parents stop in and give us help on occasion, do a couple markets for us. But at this point, they're they're pretty much out of all the day-to-day operations. What sparked my interest in in talking with you, so part of my blog, I do a lot of uh, vintage recipes from like the 1700s and the 1800s. And I always assumed when, I always assumed that chickens today are were a lot bigger than the chickens back in the 1800s and that that's kind of, how things have just progressed in agriculture that everything grows faster and bigger today than it used to. And, uh, and so I was reading one of these cookbooks. It was from 1887 and she was talking about using a chicken that's five pounds. And I was thinking, well, I can go to the store and buy a chicken that's five pounds. That's, that doesn't sound dramatically smaller than, than what I could find around today. And so I started to think, just in terms of chicken and chicken production today on, um, you know, what are the differences today in how they're raised and, you know, between commercially and then what you would see on, on your farm. So that's, that, that, those are all great thoughts. Wonderful question. And we can't speak to how um, chickens were raised, you know, back in 1800s. Uh, we just haven't done our, our research. I, I do. I do want to start with maybe uh, with like a, a minor definition of, of factory farming, or maybe just maybe it's more of a broad definition if you like quickly Google it. But and you know, in terms of factory farming, I would say that it's that they're more interested in um, the the maximum amount of production with the lowest amount of cost. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Right. And as a small farm, as a community farm, that's not our primary goal. Of course, we want to survive, but we care about people and we care about sustainability and we care about our creatures. We care about the earth. And so what that means is 
our chickens are not going to be in spaces where they can't walk around or have access to fresh air or fresh water. And so we have two different types of birds, as Chris mentioned earlier. We have meat birds and we have egg layers. Our egg layers are free range. So they have about three acres on which they just wildly roam. And, and not only do they roam that acreage, but they also just go next door and go to the middle school next to us. So they are truly free range birds. Our meat birds are in chicken tractors that Chris designed and we built. And so that means we push them. So we basically move the chicken tractors every single morning into new pasture so that the meat birds also have access to um, fresh grass every day. And again, sunshine, rain, water, all of that stuff that's crucial, not only for, you know, healthy development of animal life, but so that they can enjoy it too. So th- those are just some of the differences. Right. And, you know, I think in terms of a factory farming, I-, I-, I don't know a lot about it. I have read articles and I've seen some videos and I can't speak to all factory farms, but again, it goes back to being more concerned with you know, creating um, a mass amount of something, uh, again, at a, a minimal cost. And so what that probably means is animals don't have access to fresh air and water and probably the kind of food that we're able to give our animals. Um, otherwise, it's too expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And and what little I do know about factory farming is that the animals are, you know, they don't get to walk around like our animals get to walk around. If they get sick, I think they get cold, things like that. I was listening to a podcast once where they were talking about uh, chicken farming with with uh, chickens that lay eggs, right? So, and how if they're if they're in if they're pasture raised, they can be really hard on on the ground. Like if you leave them there long enough, there would be nothing left. Is that true at all? Is that why you have to move them so often? Are Are you talking about the egg layers or the the meat birds? Because like like Cherry was saying, we have two different uh, types of birds and they're, they're several different breeds. Um, but to a certain degree that, that is, uh, correct. You know, if, if those birds, like, like Cherry was saying, our egg layers, um, being on, on almost three acres free access to, they don't tear it up at all. I mean, we, we still have to go out there once a month and brush hog it all down. Otherwise it'd be, you know, four or five foot tall. Uh, grass back there. Now with the meat birds, we we move them every single day and we do that for multiple reasons. Yes, if we left them in one spot, it wouldn't be a healthy environment for them um, and they would completely eat it to the ground. Uh, but when we move them every day, they have access to that fresh pasture. Uh, we'll usually spread some feed out over that pasture to encourage them to graze. And by the next morning, we'll come out there and, and it will look like a freshly mowed golf green. Um, they'll, they'll have it right down to the ground and then we'll move them again. So, yeah, and, and it can do something similar in the wintertime. Um, the areas where they're walking primarily, you know, they'll, they'll have their set paths. And over the winter, when there's not much new growth going on, they will wear out some paths <laughs> quite a quite a good ways around the, the three acres. Uh, what what would you say is the difference between a meat bird and a layer? Because I always thought they were the same thing, <laughs> to be honest. 
Um, well, it's, it's the breed. Um, I mean, you can eat any chicken and we do after, uh, after we get several years of egg laying out of our hens, we do, uh, then in turn process those birds and we sell them. Uh, we sell them as what we call crockpot chickens because they're a little bit older. The, mm-hmm. the meat's going to be a little tougher on them. And so we, we sell them as crockpot chickens to, to encourage stews, things like that. They're, it's really good for, for wintertime. But the uh, our actual meat birds are a breed called Cornish Cross. It's, it's nationally, it's probably the, the number one um, breed for uh for, for good quality, tasty meat on a chicken. And they're at this stage, they've, they've been bred so long that, uh, they get to around that three to five pound range, uh, that you were talking about at the, the start of the interview, they get within that, that size range, uh, in about eight weeks. And so they're, they're not on the farm more than two months. Whereas our egg layers, um, you know, we'll, we bring in a, a couple hundred new birds every year and we, we try to, to keep them for three to four years. And those birds are several different breeds. We've got, um, we've got one uh, group out there that are called Easter Eggers. Uh, they're bred so that each bird, they have, you know, a full spectrum of egg colors that they can possibly lay. Uh, we've got some Americanas, some Rhode Island Reds, some Sex Links, a couple of Foghorns, excuse me, I said Foghorns, a couple of Leghorns. We got some Bard Rock. So they, they tend to be, uh, much, much more diverse, um, when it comes to the egg layers. And that's so that we can get a wide variety of eggs. You know, well, we have eggs that go all the way from white, light brown, dark brown, uh, green, bluish green, uh, cream colored, you know, it, it looks like a rainbow when you open up one of our dozen eggs. Is there a difference in the flavor between all of them or is it just a, a look of the, of the shell? Oh no, not a difference in flavor. I, I, I collect about 180 eggs every day. So I'm with the, the egg layers quite a bit and, um, I wash the eggs and all of that stuff. And, um, we all eat the different colored eggs and we haven't noticed a difference in flavor. Some people swear that there is, but, but we haven't. And I don't think from what I've read that any science has proven there's a difference in flavor as well. You might know this. You might not. I don't <laughs> What makes a, uh, what makes an eggshell like in the, in the grocery store? So you go to the grocery store, all the eggshells are white and then you have the really expensive eggs. that are like the, the cage free or the pasture rate in their, brown shells so it just looks like it's it looks like it's better than the pale white egg um what what determines the shell color well the the funny thing is between uh brown and and white eggs is the shell is actually white on both of those when you crack open a brown egg and look inside the inside part of that shell is white the the brown part is uh, it's just a pigmentation that gets added when the eggshell is forming. Some breeds have it, some breeds don't. Um, and then uh, the the green eggs 
when you crack those open, the green and blue ones, you'll notice that they are actually blue all the way throughout the egg, both on the outside and the inside. Yeah, and I just want to add to going back to the difference between factory farming and small farming or community farming is that I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what makes, um, you know, like what are farming, right? So, so there's these, this idea in grocery stores that if it's like uniform brown eggs, then there, there are more farm eggs than the white eggs. Mm-hmm. And the, the reality is that if you're really buying eggs from a small farm community farm, then you're pr- most likely going to have all different sizes of eggs. Sometimes those eggs come out and they have like a warped layer or a warped look. Sometimes they're speckled. Um, I mean, there's just such a variety and actual fresh farm local eggs than I think you would typically find in factory farming eggs because it's, it's just, you know, people are used to getting uniform things from like the sizes of broccoli heads and cauliflower heads and leeks and onions in grocery stores in addition to eggs. You know, things have to look a particular way. They have to look uh, pretty, so to speak. And, you know, that definition is different. You know, it's different for us with a small farm. That's something that I definitely agree with. I think a lot of times we expect it to be, (laughs) we expect it to be uniform every single time, get the same thing every single time. I just know every time I walk through the grocery store, there's that conception, at least in my mind, or that perception that, if it's brown, it must be better than than the white. And what you're saying is just if if it's local farm eggs, you're not going to have that uniformity. You're going to have all sorts of different colors in, in that dozen that you get. Yeah, and I can't speak for all local farms because I've certainly seen eggs that are more um, uniform uh, or, or more consistent in like their size and color. But I think also maybe people are picking that out because that's what people, that's what customers are used to. We make a point through our egg CSA and through the sales that we do at different farmers markets um, to not make our eggs uniform. We want people to see what eggs really look like in all of the, you know, in, in all of their variety, again, going back to speckled and big or small or medium, et cetera. The one thing we like to, to tell people is that if, if they really want to see the difference in our eggs, we tell them to come to the farm and to watch our chickens run around and eat all of the, the grass, grain, bugs, anything they can catch. And that is, that's the difference in the eggs. It's diet has a lot to do with it. They're, they're eating what chickens are supposed to eat. And we had somebody actually at a market today um, say that uh, our, our egg yolks were like a, a really fine cheese. I loved, I loved the analogy because I mean, you think about a lot of those eggs that you are getting in a, in a grocery store you crack them open and they're pale yellow. The yolk is, is runny. Um, and they just, they, they don't have a strong look to them. Meanwhile, you crack open one of our eggs and the yolk, I I think that's the, the biggest surprise for people. The yolk is not pale yellow. It's not even light yellow, dark yellow, anything. It is orange. It is, it looks, like the color of a, a dark 
orange. Well, and part of the reason for that too is when because people have bought our eggs and done samplers, like ha, like had blindfolded their kids and then like set out two different hard boiled eggs, and the kids would eat you know our eggs and then the store bought eggs and notice a difference, or you know cook two of our eggs side by side, sunny side up, and ask you know you know it, do you know which one is the farm egg and which one is the the store egg. Um, so, but I think part of the difference for us is we have a high, like we get rid of our eggs within a week. So, you know, as soon as we collect them, they're, they're gone within a week and, and we don't like to keep eggs any longer than that. So our eggs really are fresh. Whereas my husband used to be a truck driver and I guess you can tell the story of how eggs used to sit on shelves. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it can take much longer than people realize to get eggs from one of the large farms distributed to the the area distributor then distributed to the local warehouse then from that local warehouse to the store um you know you you don't really know when your eggs were were created the only thing that little carton at the store has on there is a date that they'll go bad and you know it's it's nice many most of our customers tell us just how nice it is to know that, you know, their eggs have been in the world for less than a week and to be eating those, it's, it's, it's a privilege and it's a luxury really at this point. And that, you know, I don't want to definitely, I don't want to vilify um, factory farming because people have to eat, you know, does that make sense? Right. And we, we've just chosen to do what we do so that we can plug into our community so that we can try to create and imagine a more sustainable way of um, farming in the world and being in relationship with the earth and all the people that we provide food for. And we hope that those models will continue to, to grow and that people will continue to try and, and do, do better, right, do, in terms of how we treat the earth and the creatures. I agree. I, I don't want to vilify the factory farms or anything. I just, I, I can appreciate the, the difference in, you know, and the effort that goes into what y'all do where you're raising the chickens and then gathering the eggs and then within a week getting them out there into, into people's homes. Because I know that does make a difference. You know, when an egg is old, it's the white's going to be more loose. So you, you crack it in the pan and it spreads out all over and, when it's fresh, there really is that difference between a fresh egg and something that's been sitting around for a long time in that it, it's just going to hold up better to the cooking process and it's going to taste better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One last question that I had, mainly because of what has gone on with commercial chicken producers and and egg producers with all the different labels that go onto the packaging. I mean, they throw on just about anything to make their product sound more like yours, where it's natural and it's it, the chickens are eating what they should be eating and they're raised how they should be raised. But from, from what I've gathered, a lot of the labels out there can be misleading. So how can you tell, if I'm in the grocery store shopping, how can I tell that I'm actually getting a quality egg or a quality chicken? That is a good question, a complicated question. I'll tell you how we go about using that those terms and being transparent with them. So, for instance, we talked earlier about our chicken tractors and how we can't call our meat birds free range 
because they have um, they have a certain amount of space that they have access to, which is not enough space to really call it free range. Um, but they're still getting access to enough pasture that it's healthy and sustainable, not only for them, but for um, the earth as well. So that that's how we define pasture raised is that there's there's limited space, but it's still good. It's still healthy. It's still sustainable. They're they're completely enclosed, but they have uh, they have an area to sleep in and then an area that we have netted off to protect them from predators. Um, that is open to the air and, and grass and everything. Right. Whereas our um, our pigs, well, our, our our egg birds have much more space. I mean, they're they're really quite wild. They they just sort of live and do what they want to do. So that's free range. Our pigs, we would say, are pasture range too, um, because they they have access to a certain amount of space. And they don't get to just walk around everywhere like they probably would want with the chickens, although our pigs seem pretty happy even in the, the pasture size that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and our cows are, are more free range because they have so much more space to have access to. So that's one way to look at that terminology or to, or to use it. Um, I would say that the other thing a consumer can do, if you can't know your farmer and know your food directly, that's our, our main thing. You know, you know your farmer, know your food. So if they're not in areas where they have access to that, um, then whatever they're doing, any kind of grocery shopping, and they're interested in trying to find out, okay, is this really free range? Is this really organic? Um, is this really pasture raised? To research the company and also research any sort of critiques or concerns that have been made about the company through online articles that you can find on maybe like a .org or a .edu one thing that we try to do on our um, social media pages, which you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, just the Hill Family Farm, is we, we post articles occasionally that speak to the nature of what is real organic or what is real free range or um, you know, pasture raised and things like that so that we can also help um, not only educate the people that follow us and, and buy product from us, but so that we can stay educated about it ourselves. Right. So really the, the key is to research. I mean, you, I, we always tell our customers, don't just take our word for it. Come to the farm. Come to the farm and watch how we interact with our animals. You know, come visit the chickens. Come visit the pigs. You know, volunteer a day with us if, if you, you know, still move to do so. Um, our farm is so open to our community because we want people to see what, you know, what farming life is like and what fresh food is like. I think that is is actually quite amazing because even if, like with factory and commercial farming, even if it was super safe and super humane 100% of the time, uh, they're not going to give you that kind of access. You're not going to be able to go visit and see everything that's going on. So I think that speaks a lot to what you're all doing that you have, you, you have nothing to hide, right? If you want, if you're curious about what we're doing, come onto the farm, we'll show you. Yes. I mean, when we say know your farmer, know your food, we mean it to the utmost extent. I mean, even to the point where when we take our animals to be processed, we, you know, we wanted to make sure that our animals, you know, are, are ha- that, that they are being treated to the best of everybody's ability. And so we even made sure that whatever processor we chose allowed us to inspect the facility, including witnessing how that process takes place. 
So it, it, it's all very important to us because it's, it's no small thing to take a life. And it's a very big responsibility and privilege to feed people. Yeah. So if I were to come by to your farm, what would I be able to purchase? Like what, what are some things that I would see and how could I find out more about you and what you do? So if I was someone listening to this show, what would I, what would be my next step? Uh, well, the first thing we always tell people to do is follow us on Facebook or Instagram. It just simply uh, do a search for Hill Family Farm in White House, Tennessee. Should be one of the first two or three to pop up. Other than that, we also have a website. It's thehillfamilyfarm.com. You can get a lot of background info on us there. Uh, we've also got a little six recipe cookbook available if you sign up for the newsletter. Uh, we've got uh, a, a web store where you can order things. And then uh, also, if you stop by the farm, we try to keep everything in stock uh, year round. Um, occasionally we'll get low, but anything we have to offer, we're going to have it at the farm. So on chicken, that's things like whole chickens, boneless, skinless breasts, dark grilling quarters, ground chicken. Uh, we also have all of the the livers, hearts, gizzards, bones. chicken feet, soup bones, chicken soup bones. You know, on our pork, it's, uh, we've got, uh, you know, I'll go through those quickly, but, you know, the obvious, the, the pork chops, the ribs, Boston butts. We do a couple of specialty stuffed bratwurst. We have a jalapeno and cheddar um, bratwurst. And then a new one that we've uh, just teamed up with our processor on. Uh, that is a garlic and pepper stuffed brat. That is incredible. <laughs> um, and then uh, with our our beef, we we tend not to go through cows as quickly as we do our other animals. Um, and so sometimes we'll we'll be a little low on our beef, but typically on that we're going to have your ribeyes, New York strips, top sirloins, things of that nature. In general, like if you if somebody wanted to stop by, most people just stop by. I mean, people actually come here Monday through Sunday because we're on the our location is prime, which is part of the reason why as a small farm, both of us are able to stay here and do this as our full time work, just simply based off of location. Not not to forget all of the hard work and capital his parents and originally put into it when they started this process. So people stop by Monday through Sunday. We never turn anybody away. Uh, we do prefer that people message us before coming, um, but sometimes people will just be driving by and get a wild hair and just pull on in. And like I said, we'll, we'll stop. One of us will stop what we're doing and give people a quick farm tour. And um, everybody is always welcome, including you, if you're in, ever in the area. Well, that'd be great. I would absolutely love that. <laughs> we would too. We, we love having company over and both of us love to cook. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> I will. <laughs> That's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. Well, I appreciate taking the time. You know, I know it's, it's, you, you all work hard and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk and to, to be on the show today. Oh, not a problem. We enjoy sharing. Yeah. Thank you for inviting us to share about the work that we do in the community and um, helping, you know, just being in conversation with people and, and spreading education and awareness about small farms and community farms. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope you learned a lot about chicken production and small community farming. 
And as Chris mentioned on the show, he has a great gumbo recipe. As soon as I get that, I'm going to make it and then post it in an article for everyone to read. So stay tuned for that. Keep looking on the website and social media at uh, ToastyKettle.com and then Facebook at ToastyKettle, Twitter at ToastyKettle, and you'll be able to see when that posts. So now I'm going to step into the kitchen. We're going to talk about a recipe that I picked up for English peas with cream from 1759. Now, this cookbook that I have from the 1700s, it has a lot of real funky recipes in there. And a lot of times they have different spices and flavorings that go in that totally ruin the flavor of the dish. So I made a calves tail recipe. I used oxtail obviously instead of calves tail, uh, but I felt it would be fairly similar. And in that recipe, it produced some of the most amazing, tender, flavorful beef that I've ever had. And then it had you make a sauce out of the drippings in the pan and put in a bunch of mace and cinnamon, cardamom, weird spices like that into the sauce. And then I felt it completely ruined it. <laughs> it just completely destroyed the flavor. And I did not find it enjoyable what's, whatsoever. I always am a little skeptical when going way back to the 1700s to do a recipe. I often feel like it's going to be more of an adventure than it's worth. However... With this recipe for English peas with cream, I was absolutely blown away. Now, this is a recipe that I was raised on. I think everyone's mom, grandma made a recipe similar to this. Some and, and there are a lot of variations on that. Some will have bacon, some won't. Some will add potatoes to the peas, and some will just have the peas with the cream. And whatever route you go there's a good chance you've had this before and there's a good chance that it was a hmm, decent experience. Nothing that blew your mind or made you want to go out of your way to have that again. This recipe is going to change that. Okay. I rarely get excited about recipes to this extent, but this one was incredibly simple and it was very tasty. And it seemed like every element had a purpose which is rare with these recipes. Like I said, sometimes they'll throw in a spice or something like that that just doesn't jive with the 21st century palate. And, uh, and that's not the case here. So they start with bacon and onion, and that's absolutely amazing. Who doesn't want bacon and onion cooking together into the dish, right? And then it goes on to add cream and make it your typical white sauce with the butter, flour, cream, bacon fat, and, and the onions, and then salt and pepper to taste. But the thing that I actually really liked about this recipe was the lemon juice. That was something that I felt really brightened the dish up. A lot of times when you have the peas with cream, it can be really dense and really heavy. A lot of cream, a lot of fat, but nothing that really brightens it up. So with good sweet peas and the lemon juice, it really lifts and is a great counterbalance to 
that heavy fatty cream and bacon that goes into the dish. The result is a side that will go with almost any meat and be absolutely delicious and make it seem like you really put a lot of effort into dinner when it doesn't really take a whole lot to throw uh, a whole lot of time to throw together. So again, you got to check out this recipe. You won't be sorry. You can find that recipe and all of my other recipes on toastykettle.com. And then also I, I post them regularly on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, James at Toasty Kettle. Be sure to check those out. And also make sure you follow the links in the description to check out Chris and Sherry at Hill Family Farm. And if you're in the Middle Tennessee area, make sure you stop by. If you're traveling through, stop by and see what they have cooking like they said in the, uh, in the interview, they never turn anyone away. They'll drop whatever they're doing and make sure you feel right at home, and they can help you out with, uh, with different meats and produce that they raise there locally on the farm. It doesn't get much better than that. So follow the links. You can see what they have, what they can ship, and, and then also where they're located if you want to stop by. That's all I have for today. If you liked what you heard, make sure you share this on social media or tell a friend. That really does help. That's how we grow the show, that word of mouth, and uh, it's much appreciated. It allows me to keep doing what I love to do, which is bringing these interviews and recipes to you. And that's all for this week. 